Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. How can you be depressed? How can you be overeating? How can you drink too much when you have everything? What's wrong with you? In the end, I did just reach a breaking point where I thought I can't live with this anymore. And I tried to write my farewell letter, which was really just to my mum. You get into this downward spiral. And this is the first time you're going through this as a young person. You've never heard about anything like this. You don't know anyone that's gone through anything like this. So you feel like you are totally messed up. And you're constantly finding yourself in these situations where you should be happy and you're just not. People would look at me and they'd be like, oh, you've got everything. You know, you're so strong. And when they saw me having the meltdown, they'd be like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that this happened to you. I was all set to do it and in tears and trying to write this, scribble this letter, but I was just so distraught that, that I couldn't write it properly. And then the phone rang. And I told her how low I was feeling. Um, and she said, just give me, a, give me a day. I just, there's somebody you need to talk to that I know, trust me. When I was in therapy and my therapist prescribed me, you know, she gave me two options. She goes, I can send you to a psychiatrist, we can get you on some antidepressants, or she suggested that I go out and volunteer. If you don't share your pain, it will consume you. If you don't share your pain, it will destroy you. If you do share your pain, it will set you free. Hi there, it's Light Watkins, host of At the End of the Tunnel. As you know, this podcast focuses on the story behind the story of people who've started movements for social good and all of the obstacles they had to overcome along the way. And one of those obstacles is mental health. And with this past year's pandemic, there's been a surge in mental health cases around the world. So I decided to go back through this past year's episodes and put together a compilation of stories related to mental health specifically and how the various guests navigated their way through. The objective is to inspire you to keep following your heart and not to give in to those darker forces that can haunt all of us at different times and in different ways. Sometimes it's just society trying to make us fit in. At other times, it's internal. The stories in this episode are going to cover the spectrum of mental health, from anxiety to loneliness to depression, suicidal thoughts, as well as the various solutions the guests have used, such as therapy, meditation, volunteering, and adopting a bigger life purpose. I think it's easy for a friend to say, hey, just go to therapy or you should start meditating and that kind of thing. But to hear the stories firsthand of how someone used those interventions and the kinds of questions they were asking themselves and the action steps they were taking, I think that can have a very profound type of impact on inspiring us to keep going. So I've, I've put together a handful of clips that are about seven to 10 minutes long each with various guests such as Ben Nimpton, who started The Buried Life, and Bronnie Ware, who you'll remember from the Top 5 Regrets of the Dying episode. There's a clip from AJ Relan from Hashtag Lunchback talking about his experiences with volunteering. There's another clip from Jesse Israel, who founded the mass meditation movement called The Big Quiet. And Leon Logothetis of The Kindness Diary fame talks about his before moment when he was suffering a series of meltdowns. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you'll remember some of these stories, but I think listening to them all in one episode is going to be incredibly helpful for those of you who are navigating through a difficult time personally right now, or maybe you know someone who is and you're not quite sure what to say or do about it. So first up is a clip from my conversation with Emma Menu, who started a platform called Surviving Sundays, which became an outlet for storytelling, self-love, hope, and survival. 
And her overall aim is to normalize the conversation around mental health and to add solace to the lives of others who are struggling to make it through difficult times by offering community and support. In this clip, Emma describes what happened after a life-altering breakup where she was supposed to move to the United States from London and how she made her way through the darkness. So when I walked out of the apartment that night and kind of didn't look back, it was between Christmas and New Year, so there were no hotels, a lot of friends were away. Immediately I was faced with this challenge of who could I go to in London. I couldn't even get back home to my parents on this particular day, um, having just arrived a few hours earlier as well. So there was like this fight or flight response. That, that moment was just all about survival and just getting to a place of safety. And my uncle and the family kind of put me up for a little bit. What then happened was, as I kind of came through that immediate moment, just trying to find a place to be, within a day or so, there was a breakdown. I mean, I be- it was completely debilitating. So um, I stayed with my... It's also vague. It's, it's funny how your mind kind of protects you from this stuff, but I left my auntie and my uncle. I went back to Manchester. And I just remember being in bed. Um, showering was off the cards. Hmm. Feeding myself. Um, getting from my bed to you know, just go to the toilet was really like just, you're just lying there for like so long just thinking, I need the bathroom, I need the bathroom, I need the bathroom. Like just willing yourself to just get up and do that. Like meeting you, that's how I describe a breakdown. It's the inability to meet even your most basic Mm. needs. Mm. And I was experiencing that in a home where my my mum and my stepfather were there. Um, And there was a time in which I would come back to London and be on my own, which is when it got really quite dark. And... I couldn't afford to stay in a hotel and a friend gave me her house. She lived elsewhere and she said, stay in my house. So I stayed in her house and in this very silent space away from any support that I'd had for the previous four weeks. Which was all back in Manchester. Which was all back in Manchester. I'm putting myself out there, trying to get interviews, trying to put CVs out. It's a situation I've never been in before. One job followed another. Word of mouth had always been a thing. I'm reaching out to try and get work. Nothing's coming back to me. And I'm just in this place where I can see that my partner, like that that life is gone. Not just he has gone. The love has gone. The dream has gone. Um, I can't get back on my feet. I don't have an apartment. And there was a moment when I'm staying in my friend's house where I really thought about taking my life. Mm-hmm. And it went from the thought to the preparation of that. Mm-hmm. And so you had devised a plan and everything. I had a plan. I had, like, I'd thought about the means. I'd thought about when. Um, I'd thought it through. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I go on now and I, I, I've, like, t- I teach a course that, that touches on this. But it wasn't about wanting to die. It was just about wanting this pain to end. To end and not being able to see a future in which I would be of any value and just to kind of like we've not really talked about it but this wasn't about the guy or even and it and it was about a lost dream but all of that meant so much because when I look back at my past I saw so much pain so much rejection an internal belief in my very core that I was unlovable and unworthy of love and were people reaching out to you at the time offering to be there and help you and talk to you and listen and you felt like um, I was just being a burden to them or no one was really reaching out? Some people time. reached out and it was somebody actually. So I'd come off social media and I was quite active on social media. So some people had noticed, but a lot of people are just wrapped up in their own world or they think they think you've gone. And so you I felt lonely. Yeah, I felt incredibly lonely, but I felt ashamed. I, you know, I'd, I'd been so confident of like this relationship and where it was going and there was talk of all the you know all the things you talk about when when you're with somebody this great future and I shared that with people close to me I felt so humiliated and it was just a time of like great pain and loss and looking back at the past and just thinking well this is what happens this is what happens when I dare to dream because so many painful experiences had come in previous years and relationships in which I had felt hurt again that I just wanted the pain to end and it was in one of these moments where I talk about the sound of silence sometimes where if you've ever heard that where the silence actually has kind of like a noise there was like a ringing and Mm. I felt so alone and I had planned that in the days to come like it would be the end somebody called my phone 
who had not heard from me for a while, who I love, who I care for. But we'd not spoken for some time. It's not something that I speak to all the time. And she rang, and she rang again. And something just made me pick the phone up, a time when I wasn't really talking to anybody. And we had a conversation, and I told her how low I was feeling. Um, and she said, just give me, a, give me a day. I just There's somebody you need to talk to that I know. Trust me. Trust me. And she came back with a phone number of a, of a therapist mm-hmm. that I would go on to meet. And I'd had experiences with therapists. Therapists in my late teens had some really unfortunate experiences in the therapy room with people that just either weren't for me or who I believe weren't practicing in the right way. And I, I went and met this lady that went on to be the figure that has been the most central in my healing. Mm. And through my conversations with her, um, I learned, you know, I, I found a path of recovery. And it's through those experiences that go beyond therapy mm-hmm. to the things you have to practice in your life. Mm-hmm. But through a 50-minute session once a week, sometimes twice a week, where I could go into a space when I was in crisis and be held by somebody in that space. I was able to firstly address the crisis that I was in, but she knew, I didn't know, I just wanted to go in there and talk about my current situation. She knew we had to go back. Mm. And she waited until the time was right to do that, to look at past events that had contributed to a lot of the way that I was feeling because that breakdown did not happen solely because of this, mm-hmm. this incident. This was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. This was the trigger. So, this that was your sort of tunnel moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think like there's a lot of experiences I've had that I don't share on Surviving Sundays. And to me, it's quite incredible that nothing more serious happened before the age of 34. To mm-hmm. me, it's a miracle I made it to that point. That was Emma Mainu from episode two, which was actually the first episode I ever recorded for this podcast. I'll never forget, we sat down at the White City Soho Works in London in the fall of 2019, and we had that conversation before I had anything developed for this podcast. There was no logo. I don't even think I had finalized the name of the podcast at that time, but this was my very first step in making it happen. So I'm grateful to Emma for setting the tone of what this podcast ultimately became. Next up, we're going to hear from Ben Nimpton, who is a friend of mine and one of the creators of the wonderfully inspiring MTV show called The Buried Life, which is basically a group of guys who got together to cross off impossible goals from their bucket list. And in the process, they helped other people achieve their lifelong dreams. But before that show came to fruition, Ben struggled through a dark night of the soul moment And in this clip, he shares his experience with depression and anxiety and how inspiration played a role in helping him find his way through the darkness. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, 
back to the episode. Like I always wanted to succeed and do well and accomplish things. And that worked well for me up to the point when I crashed and I had put so much pressure on myself to succeed through high school and into university, whether it be athletically or um, academically. And I just wanted to be liked by people. I think I just, you know, I just wanted to fit in and I wanted to excel. And I was on the national rugby team. We were training for the world cup. And so the pressure was building as we were preparing to go for our trip overseas. And I played the fly half position, which was a high pressure position. And you were like the quarterback and you also kicked all the field goals. And when I was in high school at the championship game in high school, at the end of the game, I missed a kick that could have tied the game for us. And missing that kick was just devastating for me. I, I, I really didn't recover from that mentally. You know, I, I felt like I just was a failure or, or I, I was someone that just would choke under pressure. And so leading up to the World Cup, I thought, Jesus Christ, I can, that can't happen again. You know, I can't miss an easy, what if I miss a, a field goal right in front of the goalpost at the World Cup? You know, what if I blow this once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I was thinking about this stuff at night and these thoughts would just run in my mind and I couldn't sleep. So I started to lose sleep. The anxiety grew and the pressure that I put myself grew. I dropped out of school. You know, I, I, I couldn't get myself to go to school. And then I stopped going to rugby practice because I couldn't physically go to rugby practice. I just was paralyzed. This is while you're a part of the Canadian national team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was on the U19 national team and wow. we were training to go to the, to the world cup and I stopped going to practice. So be before that, what was your mental state like before you missed that crucial kick? I, think I had never had any type of breakdown, you know, call it whatever you, you will, but I, I never had a crisis. And, and the, at this point, this was my first year at university. This was the first time I'd ever gone through anything remotely close to this. And this was debilitating. And I was freaked the fuck out. I was like, I've lost everything. It was so terrifying to think about how dark the darkness could get, right? Like, I, I remember just laying at night and just thinking, I hope this doesn't get any worse, you know, because I just don't know if I can take it. And, and that was the scariest part was just like, not necessarily how bad it was, but how bad it could get. And so that's the, you get into this downward spiral. And this is the first time you're going through this as a young person, you've never heard about anything like this. You don't know anyone that's gone through anything like this. So you feel like you are totally messed up. You have no context and you don't understand that actually half your other friends are probably going through something similar or have gone through, you know, some sort of mental health crisis or, you know, like this is just what happens sometimes as you, as you grow and as you start to learn about what you need to be healthy, you know, and obviously this was an extreme situation and episode that I was having. So was there you know, pressure from the outside? Like people were upset with you, like they would send you letters and notes or was it all self-imposed? It was, it was um, all pressure, all self-imposed pressure. I think there were social pressures that people put on me just by the nature of my position and what I was doing. But when I dropped, got dropped from the team from missing practice. Yeah. From missing practice. And ultimately I told the coach that I had a herniated disc and I just, I said, I can't, can't do it. Yep. Who were you talking to before you did that? Did you have an, anyone that bounced this off of, or you just literally was dealing with this on your own? I was just, I mean, I was talking with my parents, but I mean, my parents are two of the most supportive people in the world, but sometimes, you know, I think especially at that age, you just, you kind of deflect like their support, you know, you just, you don't want their help. Um, of course. And for me at that point, I didn't, especially my mom, she used to be a, a psychologist. And so I was, you know, just like, I don't want my mom to be my psychologist. And there was a lot of things going on, but I, I wasn't really talking to anybody. I mean, I, I tried talking to a therapist but again, I was very much of the mind that it was a weakness, like to do something like that. 
And I tried taking some medication, but again, I did not want to, and I really didn't take it. You know, I maybe tried it for a couple of days and I felt so on my own that I, I wasn't talking to my friends about it. And I didn't talk about my friends about it until a few months later, after I had already become, I became a hermit in my parents' house. Like I wasn't able to leave the house really. Like I would, my parents would just encourage me to go for a 15 minute walk. And most of the time I would go down the stairs. And when I heard them shut the door behind me, I'd go hide in the driveway. So I was just immobilized by this. Traditionally, happy-go-lucky guy, outgoing, love socializing, <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, it's, it's Did you have any spiritual, spiritual foundation at the time? Any sort of practices or anything you were doing that was even church, anything that was helping you stay kind of grounded or get perspective? Not really, no. It wasn't until later that my mom really forced me to learn how to transcendental meditate, you know, use TM and I learned how to meditate. And that's been kind of something that's been hugely important for me, especially around the lack of sleep. Like if I can't sleep, you know, I'm able to meditate and quiet my mind and I'm able to fall back asleep. So this was just a very isolating, scary time for me. And it lasted for months, like many months. What was your internal conversation? Like, where were you seeing your life ending up from that place in terms of career or anything in the future? I mean, it really was very little future for me. At that point, I thought all I could think about was the negatives, you know, what what I had lost or what had come crumbling down, that it was going to be hard to recover from this, you know, like, how am I going to go back and get back to school and, you know, get back, have, hang out with my friends again. And, and a couple friends would, you know, would, would sort of like stop by, like once people started to kind of understand what was going on after I just wasn't showing up anywhere, you know, good friends would, would pop by, but it was very hard because I was, I thought, you know, they, they, they're just pitying me, you know? So like when you're in the state, you're so, it's so dark that you kind of take, you, you're looking through a lens that's negative, you know, almost always. So my thought was like, my friend comes over. It's like, I almost feel bad for them that they're coming over here to hang out with me because they're just doing it because they want to be nice. They don't really want to hang out with me. Like, why would you want to hang out with me? I'm like, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, like a, I'm like a negative Nancy slug, right. just like not doing anything. You know, I'd never experienced anything remotely close to this. So that was, I think the hardest part was like, if I had sort of like hit some lows before that, where I kind of had, would learn a thing or two about what I needed to be healthy or like, you know, what to do in this type of situation or that other people were going through things as well, it would have been much easier. And that's why, like, when I talk about mental health in general, I always empathize, empathize with, with kids that go through it because I remember this period of my life and it was just so difficult because I just didn't know anything about what this experience was or why it was happening or what I could do or who I could reach out to or that like I could actually open up to my friends. And it wasn't until I finally opened up to them about what, I, how I was really feeling and what I was really going through that I started to learn that these things that they had been through as well. How did you open up to them? What, what, what happened? Well, eventually, eventually my friends actually almost physically pulled me out of the house and rallied me to go with them and move to a new town for the summer. So I dropped out of school, you know, I was out of commission. The summer came around and a group of my friends were going to work in a, in a new town, just, you know, Grab, grab a summer job and, and come back before, you know, the fall semester. And they kind of insisted that I go with him, them. And, and that ended up being one of the best things that I could do. Cause I, I was then forced to start to make decision decisions. I was forced to begin to take action, even though it was uncomfortable and I didn't want to, I was forced to do so, which ultimately proved to myself that I could do these things. So for instance, I had to get a job. 
And so even though I was anxious and I felt like I didn't have anything to offer and I, you know, I was, I forced myself to go to an interview and I got a job at a restaurant. And then I started working in a restaurant. I started earning a bit of money from working in the restaurant. I started interacting with people that didn't know that I'd just been at home for six months being depressed. And I started to gain confidence and I also started talking about it to my friends about these feelings I was having. And then, and then I started to meet young people my age that inspired me in some way. Like they, I met these kids that had started businesses and I had just never even thought about that as something you could do. And I, I was just so blown away that right out of high school, someone would take out a loan and start a business or they'd already traveled, you know, through India. And I realized that I got energy from these people. Like they charged my battery in some way. And I, and so as I came back from being away for that summer, one of the things that I decided to do was to try and only surround myself with those people, only surround myself with people that were going to inspire me. And that decision ultimately changed the course of my life because it led me in this path that brought me down to do what I'm doing now. And, and really like if that was the catalyst or that was the defining decision that shifted my direction by one degree in the short term, it felt small. But if I look back that one degree over time, it changed my entire path. How did you do that? Did you ignore people's calls? Did you seek out cold call people who you wanted to hang out with? Or how did you do that? How long did it take to kind of curate that group of positive influences? So first I started actively seeking out people that I felt were inspiring. So to give you an example, there was a kid that was two years younger than me in high school and he had started a clothing line and I was just blown away by this clothing line that he created out of the blue. He took out a loan and he had created this really awesome line, but also there was a give back component to it. And I just went up to him. <laughs> like I didn't know him too well. I said, man, I love what you're doing. Is there any way I can help? Is there anything I can do to, to get involved? And he said, well, you know, you could try and get some press for me, you know, anything like that would be super helpful. And I remember reading on the front page of the national newspaper of the style section, there was an article and it's, it said, if Josh thinks it's cool, it's cool. And it was back in like the cool hunting website days. And it was this kid, Josh Spear, who started his own cool hunting site called joshspear.com. And he would post stuff that he thought was cool and then it would blow up. And I thought, man, I bet you Josh would love this clothing line. And I went to his website and there was an email there. And so I just emailed him and said, this, and I wanted to send you a t-shirt on my friend's line. I think you're going to love it. And he got back to me. I was like, holy shit, Josh. <laughs> and I, we sent him clothes and he did a huge profile on the blog. And I was like, holy crap. How, I can't believe that I just made that happen. You know? Right. And like, you didn't know either of them before you met the guy with the shirts. No, I, no, I had no, I didn't, I didn't know either of them. And it was like a meaningful thing that I had been able to pull off. It also was much easier than I thought. Right. This guy was just so accessible, you know, like a front page of the style section. <laughs> and while you were writing him, you weren't, you, you, you thought, okay, I'll just do this just to build momentum, but no, nothing's probably going to happen out of it. Or did you? Yeah, no, I was mind? just like, Hey, I, I want to, I want to help. I want to get involved in this. And so after that moment, when I was like, okay, I can't believe that I got this guy, my friend, his clothing line in this blog. I thought, man, if my friend, Aaron made this clothing line. Like, I wonder what I could do after I just had this experience of being able to help him out and sort of realizing that I mean, that's like not as hard as I, as I thought it was going to be. So I thought, well, what could I do? And then I thought, yeah, I really would love to make a movie. I'd really love to make a movie or a TV show with my friends. That would be so much fun. And I'd seen a video on Facebook. This is 2006, right? This is when Facebook was just still, I think, in colleges and universities. So my friend, I wouldn't even call him my friend. I knew him from the neighborhood. Like he had taken my sister to prom. That's the only way that I knew him. He had made a video of him, him and his friends at their, fir their first years as freshmen at 
McGill University in Montreal. And it was just this like super fun kind of like they were pulling pranks and they were having fun in their dorms. And I was like, oh, I called up this kid. I said, Johnny, you make movies. Like I've always wanted to make a movie. Like what if we made a movie together? And he said, oh, you know what? I was just talking to my friend Dave about something exactly like this. And Dave had gone <laughs> to my high school. I said, I know Dave. He's a break dancer. You know, he's a crazy kid that's two years younger than me. I said, I'm going to call your older brother, Duncan, who's my age. I'll see if he wants to get involved in this. And why don't we all start just chit-chatting about making a movie next summer or something. That'd be so cool. So that was Ben Nempton from episode three. If you want to go back and listen to the rest of his story and how that experience led to the creation of The Buried Life. The next clip is from the top five regrets of the dying author, Bronnie Ware. Hers was one of my favorite episodes in terms of range of experience, probably because our stories align so much. She's been a vegetarian, a meditator, a nomad, a bit of a gypsy. She's worked with dying patients for many years. She had very little interest in anything conventional. She tells the story of healing her body spontaneously at one point. But what surprised me the most was her dark night of the soul moment where she got cracked open, as she calls it. She found herself suicidal and making a plan to end it all when something seemingly miraculous happened. Let's listen in. Once the funding ran out from the jail, I, my energy was just getting lower and lower and some new neighbours had moved in next door to the cottage I was living in and they were fighting all the time so it wasn't a nice home environment either and so I just had this calling to move back to the country and I hadn't lived in a rural area for years, like 25, 27 years or something. And so I rented this house on a cattle farm, a vegan on a cattle farm, and it was right by a creek and it was beautiful and I just thought I'll just have a little break. I had a little bit of savings. I thought I'll have a break for a month or so, then I'll start looking for some sort of work. And during that time I just, it was just like someone unplugged me from the wall and I just fell into a dark pit. I just had no energy to do anything and ended up in a really huge time of suicidal depression where I just felt like all the work I'd done on myself and all the acts of courage I'd taken and all the decisions I'd done that was honouring my heart was, and I still hadn't got, I felt like I hadn't got anywhere. I was like, okay, well, I'm still here. I'm still in pain, emotional pain. I'm still financially not strong. I'm still not knowing where I belong. And yeah, and so it got really bad, shockingly bad. But I found an amazing counsellor and counselling in those days wasn't as big in Australia as it is in, in the States. And so it was quite a, something I, you know, I wouldn't tell anyone I was having counselling. It was that sort of stigma in those days. And she was just brilliant. She just said, what are you doing? You're trying to go for a gold medal in the Carers Olympics, you know, and you've got to look after yourself. And she just helped me amazingly. But in the end, I did just reach a breaking point where I thought I can't live with this anymore. And I tried to write my farewell letter, which was really just to my mum in apology. And I was I worked out this road I was going to drive off and I owned a van, so I was right at the, the windscreen, you know, you sit right at the front of a van. So I, I was all set to do it and in tears and trying to write this, scribble this letter, but I was just so distraught that that I couldn't write it properly. And then the phone rang and I, I don't know why I picked it up because I normally don't pick up unanswered like numbers I didn't know I'd let it go to the message bank and uh and it was just this really chirpy voice hello is that Bronnie and I'm like yeah who's this <laughs> and she said, I can't remember her name but you know it's so and so and it was, she was from a, a health insurance thing offering me ambulance insurance and my number was silent I hadn't given it out to anyone I'd protected it for years I'd always sort of been really private in in my personal details and yeah, and here's this woman just ringing out of the blue and reminding me that, oh, I might not actually succeed in killing myself. I not, might actually need an ambulance and be even worse off. Mm. And, yeah, then I just thought, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So I just like, no, I don't want any, I don't want any ambulance insurance things. And just sat there <laughs> I'm not going to need it anymore. No, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I have a question about this experience. So you also mentioned that there was a friend of yours that would call you and he'd say funny stuff like, you should better not be killing yourself right now. 
Yes. Is there anything that anyone could have done to help you get through that period, looking back on it now, or maybe even thinking about how you were, where you were at the time? Because I know a lot, of, I just had a friend commit suicide recently mm-hmm. and I was in touch with him and I knew he was having suicidal thoughts. And I'm just curious from that vantage point when you're in it, is it about people calling you more? Is there anything people can do to kind of help or is it just a lost cause? And I'm, obviously there are exceptions and everyone's thing is different, yeah. but just I'm wondering what your experience was. Well, you, you can't escape yourself. So it doesn't matter how much support you might get from externally. You still have to deal with, with the internals. But meditation is probably what saved me. During the day I would still somehow sit and still have that sense of connection with divinity and think, okay, you know, there's there's still love somewhere within me. But I think that the greatest thing we can do for anyone with depression is accept where they're at and not try to fix them Hmm. because that puts a a lot of pressure on people and we are naturally good people. Humanity is naturally good and wants to support each other and we do naturally care for each other and underneath all the other fear and nonsense, but we are naturally good instinctively. And... It's so easy to just want to fix people, but I think that acceptance is probably the thing that actually was the greatest act of love that I received because it it made me feel, okay, I've got support there, but I've got support no matter what and I don't have to pretend to be better today and I don't have to take their advice and, you know, a lot of friends dropped away because they just couldn't handle me. I, I was in that space for about six months and... But those that stayed were just, they weren't trying to fix me. They were just like, well, how are you today? And I'd say, well, I'm, you know, I can't swear. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not so good. <laughs> but then they wouldn't sort of say, you've got to get out and meet more people or why don't you try this or try that because they knew me well enough to know I was giving it my best shot to heal as it was. And I think I just had to be, and I think at some point all of us have to be cracked open. And that's how it came for me that it, it cracked me open through depression after giving for so many years and, and not receiving. And and if we're trying to distract people from that lesson, I mean, some people like your friend won't come back from it and they will take their life. But there's a lot of people who would go through depression that if they were given acceptance and the right environment to heal, eventually they would actually come through it and think, yeah, okay, I'm starting to come through this. Life's feeling a little bit, just a you know, a millimetre lighter today and the next day, oh, it's okay, I'm feeling a little bit lighter. And eventually, it's, not a, it's not an overnight thing, but you do, yeah, there, there is a, a turning point. I got a sense from your book that the depression for you just kind of lifted. Was it more of a gradual process than what you articulated in the book? No, I mean, it did lift. It, it lifted like the actual, like, suicidal thoughts, the the doom, the heaviness, that did lift for me. Absolutely it lifted. But what I mean is like this, it was still a gradual process to get back into life. Got to it. Find, to find my way back into being capable of, of working. And so it was just like each day like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit more capable today. Today I can... I can do this, you know, I could drive to town and have a conversation with a shop assistant or, or whatever. But, yeah, it, my life transformed really quickly and, and that's when my, my blog took off straight almost immediately following that where I just said, okay, I'm coming through, I'm through the worst of it. The, the ambulance time was a turning point and I knew then, okay, I'm not going to kill myself. I've got to that point where I was that close to doing it I want to value the gift of my life now. Show me how to live in a different way. And so that's how the cloud sort of lifted and, and my eyes were open to new colours and it was like the whole farm was illuminated, like I'd come off some really, like I'd been in a 20-day silent retreat or something and everything, all my senses were heightened. And, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty phenomenal for me how it all happened. Again, that was Bronnie Ware from episode 24. I highly recommend listening to her entire episode if you haven't already. She'll definitely inspire you through her many stories. Okay, that's three down and just three more clips to go. Next, we're going to hear from 
Hashtag Lunchbags co-founder AJ Rilan, who shares his experience with mental health and the two options he was given by his therapist, which was go on medication or go out and volunteer. Let's see which one he chose and how it turned out. My mom and a lot of her side of the family suffers from depression. So my entire life, my mother was on antidepressants. And, you know, there was a, there was a point, you know, when I was really young, uh, I had actually found, found her laid out, you know, attempting to take her own life and by taking way too many of her prescription medications. And I was the one that had to call 911 and bring her back. And I was pretty upset because, again, it was just me and her. And I always kind of had this lingering sense of, that I was going to be left, right? I was already kind of born into a situation where I only had half of my parent, my parental group. And then my remaining parent <laughs> was like trying to go. And I took that super personally because, and you know, that's things, again, when you're young and you see that, you're just like, well, maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe I'm not, you know, and it's something that, you know, whether it's chemically or learned behavior or whatever, and you're constantly finding yourself in these situations where you should be happy and you're just not. And that's something that I chose to go head up against. And when I was in therapy and my therapist prescribed to me, you know, she gave me two options. She goes, I can send you to a psychiatrist. We can get you on some antidepressants or, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm not really into that. I'm sure that works for some people, but, you know, not really a path that I want to go down. What else do you have for me? And she suggested that I go out and volunteer. And you tried volunteering that Thanksgiving at a soup kitchen. What was that experience like? Yeah, I had a couple friends that just randomly invited me and I was like, great, this is on my to-do. Meanwhile, I'm out in the world completely pretending like everything's fine. I'm not like, sad. Mm -hmm. Nobody's worried about me. I'm just normal, you know, <laughs> but like internally it's just, you know, it gets dark. So uh, a couple of friends invite me to the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving, which is like designated day of giving. I'd already been for a couple months, had it on my to-do list and she, you know, like we went and it wasn't the best experience. And, you know, it made me feel even worse because, you know, while I'm kind of in my woes, I'm not really programmed to be grateful and present. So I'm like, now I'm feeling even worse because here I am and there's people that are really out here that need help that aren't in the best place. And the volunteer experience overall just wasn't good. And the way that the volunteers were kind of being handled, the way that the volunteers were handling the people that we were feeding, like it just, I just left feeling kind of gross and, and guilty. Uh, so that was kind of my first like real experience. You know, I, I, I volunteered before, but it was more around a prerequisite to finish something or to graduate from somewhere or to get into a program or community service hours and things that were just, you know, with no real intention. So that was kind of my first foray into it. So was the medication looking better after that? Or were you thinking, I no. just got to give it some more, some more uh, no, I, I just, options? I just like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of, this too shall pass, right? Or, you know, just kind of deal with it on a day by day. So I think it kind of came back around that Christmas, which is like day two designated day of giving. Well, your friend Felicia inspired something around that, right? Talk a little bit about her. Yeah. You know, had an old friend, not in touch anymore, but she was, uh, was looking for a Volunteers. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of a perfect storm, actually. So I'll, I'll start with Christmas Eve. I was living with uh, my roommate, good friend, best friend. He had come home with another one of our friends. So uh, William is was my roommate. My other buddy JD. We were all friends. They had gone out to Target that Christmas Eve, and they kind of showed up and bought up. They just came back to the house with a bunch of toys, and I was like, "What are you guys gonna do?" I'm just sitting and sulking on the couch watching TV. And they're like, we're going to wrap all these toys up and we're going to go to the children's hospital and hand them out to the kids. And I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. So I just kind of jump in, start wrapping toys with them. We head down to the children's hospital with the hopes of passing toys out to kids. And it's like 730 on Christmas Eve and we get to the front desk and they're like, you can't just go handing out toys to kids. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. So they're like, you can leave them under the Christmas tree and we'll make sure that they get them. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. We did our good deed, but something kind of felt incomplete and missing. So, you know, I, you know, didn't think of anything of it, went home, they went out. I woke up the next morning. I, at this point, I was waking up super early and I was like, I got to do something, right? Like, I can't just keep feeling like this. And I remembered seeing her post something on Facebook 
multiple times on a super small scale, making like 10, 15, 20 meals, and then posting like a Bible quote or something along with it around like the, you know, just what she was doing. I was like, I can do that. I can find people to feed. Why don't I just go to the store? So it's like six in the morning. I go to the local grocery store and I just, just, I buy enough food to feed a hundred people. And it was like the criteria was like the lunch that your mom would make you in middle school that would make other kids jealous. So like the premium chips, the premium fruit snacks, the good cheese, the good meats, the, the good bread, the Capri Sun water, Hershey's Kisses, you know, whatever. And then went home and, you know, they were still there. Like, uh, Will and JD were there just getting up and getting moving. And then we all just we invited a couple people over and started very inefficiently making these meals together and uh, sharing what we were doing on social media. Do you remember how much you spent? I spent $126.42. And you got your 100 meals out of that? I got my 100 meals out of that, yeah. And then what what happens? What do you do with those meals? We made all these meals. Or we, you know, Will started drive, uh, writing up all these Christmas cards, which was a great touch. And we just hopped in the car, played, you know, we were listening to music the whole time. We were, you know, drinking some champagne. We were having a good time. It was like kind of a fun activity and ended up being five of us. We rolled down to Venice, Santa Monica, passed these meals out and kind of had this amazing feeling individually. And we all ended up spending Christmas night together and having dinner together and just kind of talking about the day and how it made us feel. And at that point, I kind of understood why I was told to go out and do something, be of service and be selfless and, you know, do that type of thing. It kind of clicked for me. And, you know, second nature, we shared what we did on social media and we jokingly called it hashtag lunchbag because we were making fun of hashtags and it rhymed with lunchbag. <laughs> and then we got such a positive feedback from our followers and our friends that we decided to run it back. And long story short, we started doing it. It became something we outgrew my apartment. And I ended up owning a restaurant um, somewhere in between there. And we started, we outgrew the apartment and started doing it at the restaurant. And in the past few years, it's something we've done up until the current quarantine situation. Every last Saturday a month in LA, and it's spread to over 150 cities all over the world. That was AJ Rilan from episode seven. AJ's entire episode was incredible. He told the story of how he met his birth dad for the first time in his 20s. Spoiler alert, it didn't go over too well, but it helped to answer some important questions he had about himself. And in a strange way, it liberated him from his past and inspired him to do the good work he's been able to do as a father, a husband and a community leader. Next up is someone I originally met in one of my Vedic meditation trainings in New York City. Jesse Israel was one of the most influential meditators I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So it wasn't surprising when a few years later, he started a mass meditation movement called The Big Quiet. And he introduced thousands of other people around the United States to meditation. He even shared the stage with Oprah, guiding tens of thousands of people through the Big Quiet experience during her 2019 U.S. tour. In this clip, Jesse talks about how meditation basically found him and how it was the stress and the anxiety that he was experiencing on a daily basis while working in the music industry that led him to his breakthrough moment. I found that I was starting to get really tired. You know, I was like 23 and had this seemingly really successful, exciting thing going on. And again, I was super grateful for it, but I was getting very fatigued and quite exhausted. And I'd get home from work and I would feel so stressed in my body. I looked unhealthy and it just didn't feel right. And I could just tell, I was like, this is not going to be sustainable. Like if I'm 23 and feeling this stressed, this is not going to be good as time progresses. And I was getting sick a ton. I was sleeping poorly. I would get really anxious speaking in front of groups. And also I was really blocked sexually. This was like a really interesting thing I was going through then was like, I was this young guy and like really wanted to be active and dating and meeting women. And I really felt blocked sexually. So, you know, it started to become clear to me that like the, the more blocked I was with myself, the more blocked I was going to be with other ways I showed up in my life. And I didn't feel like I could really talk about this stuff with my peers. Didn't really seem like the type of thing you talked about as a man. Didn't seem like a thing that you talked about in the music industry. Luckily, that's changing today. And 
I, at 23, had my first panic attack and was like, whoa, this shit is scary. <laughs> so I started talking to my parents about it. And my dad had always really been into Buddhist philosophy, although he's a Jewish man. He liked Buddhist philosophy and started telling me, you know, sharing books with me and stuff that I found to be comforting. And through starting to read about some of these new practices and ideas, I, I Googled meditation and found a place in New York where I was able to learn for the first time. I don't, I don't want to get too, too far ahead, but it was these challenges that I experienced while what was perceived as me running a successful business behind the scenes. I was really having a tough time and it, it led me to all the things I do today. Right. So this is great. I would definitely want to dive into that. I want to go back though for a second. You mentioned, yeah. you said you were stressed in your body. Aside from not sleeping, what does that actually feel like? You get home, what do you actually feel in your body that, that makes you feel you're stressed in the body? And I would feel this sensation in my veins that was like, it felt like there was like a hot oil, almost like oil moving through them, which I think I've, I've later learned is the sensation of cortisol moving through the body. But at the time I was like, this, it's just this sort of this icky feeling. I would feel a tightness in my chest, which is where I often feel anxiety in my body. And this feeling of discomfort and like a slight sense that things were going to be bad, like that, like there was doom ahead. But more than anything, I felt almost crippled by not knowing what to do about it and not feeling like there was something I could do about it. And where was the first panic attack? First panic attack? I was in my bedroom, actually. I was home visiting my parents in LA. And it happened when I was in my bedroom. And I just, I remember like my heart beating super fast, getting like really flushed with heat, feeling a tightness in my chest that was unbearable. And this sense of doom, this, this sense that the world was going to end. And my body was, you know, ultimately just overloaded with anxiety and stress it was breaking down. But I got pushed so far to the edge that I had to sit down with my parents and talk about it. And they were really, they're really amazing when we first started talking about this stuff. Did you think you were the only one or did you think all of your peers were experiencing some degree of this anxiety? I fully felt like I was the only one. I mean, no one else was talking about these types of challenges. And as a young, successful guy, I felt like it, quote unquote, wasn't supposed to be happening to me. And it was really isolating because no one else was talking about it. And I didn't feel like anyone else was experiencing it. And that was really confusing to me. I felt like I'm this young, successful guy. I shouldn't be having these feelings, right? There was this, there's a sense of confusion and a sense of shame around those experiences that made it extra challenging for me. And I decided I would go check out Buddhist meditation. I went to this place called Shambhala and I did like a 30-minute intro mm -hmm. and didn't tell anyone I was doing it. It was, it was a very solo experience. I felt almost like I was on a secret mission doing it. And when, <laughs> and, and when I was there, I felt really grateful for the knowledge that I learned. I didn't feel I was connecting with the community or with the lineage. It was all kind of foreign to me. It felt very much kind of like how you'd expect a meditation center to be. You know, there was volunteers, there was, you know, a kind of quiet, gentle energy. And, and it was maybe like five people that took this intro with me. Uh, you know, people were making their own tea and hugging each other. And it was very inviting. It was, it was a beautiful space to be in. But it just, it just felt so far from the way that I lived my life and the spaces that I would, you know, participate in. So it didn't really click to me as a place that I'd return to while having tremendous appreciation for what I learned because I went on and decided, I don't think I ever returned, but I, 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 I went on and I practiced what I learned through Shambhala for, I don't know, maybe seven or eight months, something like that. You know, I would do three minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the morning, and just kind of got myself comfortable with this practice, got myself comfortable with the idea of meditating and started to understand the benefits until I met a man named Light Watkins. <laughs> okay, before we get to that, what was your what was your Shambhala practice like that you were doing for a few minutes in the morning and how consistent had you been? So the challenge that I set for myself was to do three minutes every morning for a month. And it was to go sit on the couch and meditate using this Shambhala technique right after I used the bathroom every morning. It was like the second I left the bathroom every morning, I'd go sit on the couch, do this technique. It's an eyes open meditation, no back support. 
you know, the body sits upright, you gaze down gently at the floor. And when you notice that, that a thought is coming to you, you very gently note it, you say thinking, and become aware of that thought. And this, this is the process that you go through for the next, for me, in that case, it was three minutes. And then after I did it for about three, and I, I noticed almost instantly how much calmer I'd feel throughout the day. And the, the distance, the space that I felt between the things that were creating, you know, reactive, stressful situations in me and what then became more space to be responsive, thoughtfully responsive. And it was really noticeably helpful just a few minutes. And so I really, my body started to really appreciate it. So I was able to then after a month introduce 10 minutes a day and started doing 10 minutes every morning. Were you telling people about the Shambhala Center or I know there was a conversation that occurred between you and Graham Littlefield. So t- t- just take us, take us through <laughs> yeah. that moment. Yeah. People, well, people, my friends, cause I, you know, I'd be on like on friends weekends and I would go and sit for 10 minutes in meditation by myself. You know, I just go over to the corner and friends would start to say, Hey, what are you doing? What's that? And I would share about it with them. And then if they're interested, I would tell them more about it and invite them to meditate with me and, so my peers started to see that meditation was this thing that I cared about. I think they also were starting to notice, starting to notice a shift in some of my behaviors and how I showed up. But you know, it, it was just starting. It was my closest friends were, were noticing that it was something that I cared about. So my buddy, one of my best friends and one of my best buds from high school, Graham Littlefield, reached out to me and said, "I know that you've really, you know, you've been getting into meditation." I've learned about this guy, Light Watkins, who teaches this meditation technique called Vedic meditation. And he said, you should check it out. I think you like it. He's like, it's, he offers this training, this, this deep dive. We really understand over the course of four nights, what happens in the body when you meditate, how, what stress looks like in the body and how meditation can be this powerful tool that can be preventative and repair the nervous system. He's talking about all this stuff that I was very interested in. And I hadn't found a program or a person where I felt like it really clicked, where I really wanted to invest my time and my money in something that could be potentially life-changing. So I just kept doing my own thing. When Graham Littlefield told me about you, there was something about what I heard about you, what I saw on your website, the way you were talking about this technique, the technique in general, that just really resonated, something, something intuitively told me that it uh, it was something to follow. So I remember I went I went to your to your first intro talk to hear more about Vedic meditation and your teaching style and just instantly was hooked. Before I even took the course, I knew that it was going to be the practice that I'd be doing for a very long time. And I've been practicing it for God, probably 9 10 years. I can't remember. I think it was 20 maybe 2011 when I did the course with you. So yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, probably about 9 years I've been doing Vedic meditation. That was Jesse Israel. You can find our entire interview in episode eight. Make sure to listen to that when you can. And finally, we have a clip with someone who's been dubbed the kindness guy after his epic excursions around the globe without taking any money and solely relying on the kindness of strangers to house him and to feed him and to help gas up his vehicle every single day. And in return, he pays it forward in unique and unexpected ways. You may have seen his show on Netflix called The Kindness Diaries. Well, before that took place, Leon Logothetis was experiencing a series of meltdowns, which was confusing because from the outside looking in, his life appeared to be perfect. But things didn't change until he saw a movie on television one night called The Motorcycle Diaries. Let's listen in and see how all of that happened. Look, I thought that I would... I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, it wasn't going to end well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, it really, it really wasn't going to end well. I mean, it was, it was, again, on the outside, you looked, people would look at me and they'd be like, oh, you've got everything. You know, you're so strong. After I'd kind of had my, my meltdown, one of my many. And when they saw me having the meltdown, they'd be like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that this happened to you. Talk about that for a second. What, what is the, what kind of meltdown are you referring to? What does that, what does that mean for someone who's never had a meltdown? <laughs> Light, Mr. Light Watkins. 
Do I really have to answer that question? I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess there's no point in coming on your, on your show if I don't speak my truth. Eh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was doing this family thing. Uh, it was actually a family brokerage firm. And mm-hmm. it was just too much for me. Uh, my meltdown was kind of a very dark depression. I would say probably drinking a little bit too much. I would say that I was, you know, overeating. I was, I don't know about clinically depressed, but I could very well have been clinically depressed. It was because I was living a lie in the sense that I was living someone else's dream. Someone else was telling me what to do. I wasn't being my true self. And this, I'm sure, can be relatable to to all, to many. It was just some dark times, you know. And also, I, I would say you know this, man. You know, you know that however much you go on the right path, there are always times when you fall off that path. So however, you know, enlightened you may be, whatever that word means, but however enlightened you may be, there's still darkness waiting to devour you. Right. uh, Would you show up to work drunk or like, what's like one? No, 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 no. It was more, it was more kind of, you know, like binge drinking. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't alcoholism per se, but it was, it was binge drinking. It was just drinking too much. It was eating too much. It was, it was not looking after myself. It was sometimes an inability to get out of bed. It was Mm. just stuff like that. Like being at work and being like, why the hell am I here? What am I doing? And at what point did you just decide I just can't do this anymore? And, and what, what was that moment like? Well, that's an interesting point. So, so I basically watched the movie The Motorcycle Diaries. It was totally random. I just like turned on the TV one day. It was about to come on, and uh, I just watched it, and I was just mesmerized by it because. It's a romanticized version of Che Guevara traveling around South America relying on kindness. And the interesting part was in the movie, Che's father wanted him to stay and be a doctor. And he's Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm leaving. So he left. And then he goes on these adventures and he connects with all these amazing people. And he has good days and he has bad days. But he finds himself in the eyes of others. And he's living on kindness, right? The kindness of strangers? Basically. Basically, yes. I was like, look, there's another way to live. I don't have to sit behind this desk anymore. I don't have to follow other people's dreams. Mm. People live from their hearts, not just from their heads. It's not just all about making money. There's a whole, like, humanity is waiting to embrace you, the good and the bad. It was just an an awakening. So then do you go to work the next day and tell everybody to kiss your ass or, or how does it work? How do you extricate well, yourself it's from It's difficult to tell your father to go kiss your ass. So no, I never did that. Um, <laughs> what did look, you do? I just, I just, it took me a little bit of time. It wasn't like an, an overnight thing, but that was the moment. Once that happened, I knew that it was done. Mm-hmm. And I just told them, look, guys, it's, it's, I can't do this anymore. Clearly, I'm not functioning properly. Clearly, this isn't something that I'm able to continue to do. And I want to, to move on, and I did. And they just said, okay. Well, I don't know about that, but they didn't try and stop me. Well, they couldn't have stopped me. I feel like so many people are in that exact same situation, you know, because you have the biggest influence in a lot of people's lives are their family. And if your family has been fortunate enough to have their own business, and that business is fortunate enough to be successful and to provide for so many people, and that it's become sort of a heritage in people's families and they want to keep it going, yet you don't want to have anything to do with that for whatever reason. That's got to be one of the most difficult things to do is to pull away from that, particularly if it involves you being a part of some financial gain associated with with that relationship. So, can you talk a little bit about that in, in terms of your decision-making? Yeah, I mean, sometimes pain pushes you to make decisions that you wouldn't make if you weren't in pain. Mm-hmm. And this, is rela- this, I would imagine, is relatable to many. And, you know, we, try, we spend our lives trying to f- fight pain, trying to not allow pain into our lives. But pain is a, is a great teacher. And had I not been in pain, I would not have quit 
and the quitting enabled me to be sitting here talking to you, enabled me to like have adventures and to share my stories with the world and, and to be touched by many, many people's magnificence throughout my journeys around the world. So that was Leon Logothetis. Leon's episode was the first one we published for this podcast. So his is the easiest to find. All you do is you scroll down to episode number one. And if you're doing that right now, if you look just below Leon's episode, you're going to see a link on the Apple podcast app that says ratings and reviews. Do me a favor and tap that star all the way over to the right. You can do it right now. I'll wait. Perfect. You just submitted a five-star review for this podcast, which means more people are now going to be able to discover these conversations. And if you have a few more seconds, go ahead and click that link that says write a review and leave me a quick one-line review. So I appreciate those of you who have left the review for taking those few seconds to do so which honestly is the best way for you to show your support for this podcast. So if you haven't done it, please do so soon. And I thank you in advance for your support. I hope you truly enjoyed our retrospective. The way it came together was interesting. And I think I'll make an annual tradition of it, picking a a specific theme each year and featuring clips from that year's episodes that align with the chosen theme. As always, you can find the show notes and more resources, including the photos of the guests you just heard at lightwatkins.com tunnel. That way you can put faces to names. And while you're there, you'll probably get a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I send out every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. It's recently been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. I'm super excited about that. It'll be out in May of 2021. So please sign up for those and tag me at Light Watkins if you share this episode on social media. Otherwise, I'll see you back here next week with the next amazing story from the end of the tunnel. get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.